Welcome back, one and all. You're listening to the Maritime History Podcast. Today we have episode 16, Old Money, the Uluburun and Geladonia Wrecks. The Uluburun Wreck is our prime focus today, as it's the oldest shipwreck to have been found that still contains a decent portion of the ship itself, and more importantly, was also carrying an ancient treasure trove when it sank. We'll get into the details all in good time, but that's an important point with which to lead today. We have found other shipwrecks that predate the Uluburun wreck, but these older shipwrecks give us almost no evidence about the ship itself, and the remaining evidence related to the cargo that these ships dumped as they wrecked is almost entirely evidence of pottery and basic goods that are rather unremarkable except in their local context. The shipwreck found in 15 to 30 meters of water uh, off the coast of the Greek island of Dakos is a perfect example of this. It's been dated to between 27 and 2200 BCE, technically giving it the current crown for the oldest shipwreck to have been found but there are certainly more intriguing and informative wrecks out there, albeit from slightly later time periods. Two of those shipwrecks are our subjects today, namely the shipwrecks found off Uluburun and Cape Geladonia. The locations of each wreck are somewhat near one another, off the coast of southern central Turkey, about midway between the islands of Cyprus and Crete. Now, I hope today to look in a reasonably tidy fashion at each wreck individually, then the specifics and importance of each one, but I also want to try and place the wrecks in their broader context. That context, in short, is the still burgeoning trade of the late Bronze Age, and bronze, being a composite of copper and tin, wasn't always readily available right where the people needed it. Trade and transport was required, as we all instinctively understand. So far, at this late point in the Bronze Age, we haven't yet discussed the evidence of high-volume commodity trade among the Aegean and Eastern Mediterranean peoples, but today is where that fits into the story. Our two shipwrecks have at least one other thing in common, though I bet we'll pinpoint a few more commonalities before we wrap up today's episode. The glaringly obvious common trait is that the excavation work on both ships was run by Dr. George Bass, a pioneer in the field of nautical archaeology. Bass founded the Institute of Nautical Archaeology in 1973. Since that time, the Institute has gone on to lead the field in innovation and shed light on just how useful nautical archaeology can be to the wider historical disciplines. Perhaps at a later date we can talk about the how and why behind nautical archaeology being such a latecomer to the world of academic disciplines, but I don't think that fits in well today. Anyway, Dr. Bass spent years working both of these wrecks, and I'm not quite sure which one to dive into first, to be honest. Uluburun has been dated to an earlier period, somewhere in the years immediately following 1320 BCE. The Cape Galadonia wreck has been given a later date, somewhere around 1200 BCE, 
The fix for me is that Cape Geledonia was discovered first, in 1960, making it the first ever ancient shipwreck to have been excavated in full from its seabed resting place. That's actually quite important in terms of the development of nautical archaeology as a field. However, the Geledonia wreck didn't yield the amount of artifacts and useful evidence that the Uluburun wreck did, and what Geledonia did yield isn't quite as flashy or interesting either. I guess we'll start with the Geledonia wreck then, and end on a high point, and hopefully it will help the narrative too, which is some welcome news for me. So, what exactly is there to say about the shipwreck that was discovered off Cape Galadonia? Well, it was first discovered by a sponge diver in 1954, as he plied his trade in the waters off the Cape in southwest Turkey. This diver shared his discovery with a journalist and amateur archaeologist who was working in the region, Peter Throckmorton. He was able to locate the wreck in 1959, and he immediately recognized the age and significance of the site. He contacted the University Museum at the University of Pennsylvania, a place that he hoped would organize an excavation of the site. Throckmorton wouldn't be disappointed, for in 1960, George Bass became the first archaeologist to lead the complete excavation of an ancient shipwreck from the seabed. Now, because the field of nautical archaeology was so young, Bass was forced to adopt many techniques from terrestrial excavation, adapting them to the underwater environment as was necessary. I am probably the last person to ask about the techniques of maritime archaeology, techniques about which I'm not very knowledgeable. And I think even if I were to read up on them, it would take someone who's actually participated in an excavation to properly convey a coherent sense of everything that's involved. Anyway, that whole discussion is history-related, but not necessarily history in a pure sense, so I'll leave that alone for now, and uh, maybe in the future we can get somebody who has some more experience in that field. Perhaps now we can talk about the site of the wreck, and then look at how the contents of the wrecked ship inform our view of history in the region. The wreck was named after the land near which it was found, Cape Geledonia. This cape juts out into the Mediterranean ever so slightly, and because the cape is the point where the Taurus Mountains terminate and the Mediterranean Sea begins, the waters around Cape Geledonia have a reputation for being rocky and treacherous. In his Natural History, Pliny had this to say about the Cape and the handful of islands lying just off the Cape, islands that the Romans knew as the Kelinini. Pliny wrote that in the Lycian Sea are the islands of Illyria, Telendas, and Atalbasa, the three barren isles called Cyprae, and Dionysia, formerly called Caritha. Opposite to the promontory of Taurus, or Cape Geledonia, are the Kelenai, as many in number and extremely dangerous to mariners. Pliny wrote this sometime in the first century, so could we say that the wreck of this ship 
contributed to the reputation of Cape Geladonia as being dangerous? Even 1,200 years before Pliny recorded the Roman perceptions of the world as they saw it? I don't see why we couldn't, so what the heck? An initial point about the wreck itself is that almost all of the physical ship was gone. A few small fragments remained, though. It's in the ship's cargo that the useful information lies for us. For instance, the distribution of the cargo indicates that the ship must have torn a hole in its bottom by striking a jagged rock just below the water's surface. As the ship went down, her cargo was strewn in a line along the seabed, the ship herself coming to rest about 50 meters away from where she bled her cargo. Let's take a look at the small hull fragments first, and then we'll focus on the cargo itself. The team recovered a few fragments, but one tiny fragment yielded almost all of the useful information to be drawn about the Galadonia ship itself. This fragment was actually a tenon that was used in the joining of the hull planks through the use of mortise and tenon joints. Just a quick refresher on the mortise and tenon joints, if you'll indulge me. We talked about them when we looked at the Khufu ship, and these are rooted in the same idea. The tenon serves as a connector between the hull planks that make up the outer shell of the hull. They're called the strakes. If you picture the strakes as they would be situated on the ship, you can hopefully also picture the tenons and how the mortises would be cut. The strakes encircle the hull, stretching from stem to stern. In most representations that show the strakes individually, we can see the various levels of the strakes, the bottom level stacked all the way up to the gunwale, or the top edge of the hull. It's between the strakes that the mortise and tenon joints come into play. A mortise is a groove that's cut into the edges of a strake, so a mortise is cut into the top edge of one strake and into the bottom edge of the strake above it. These mortises are cut at regular intervals along the edge of every strake, and then a small wooden tenon is inserted in the top edge of one strake, and the strake above it is lined up and hammered down into place the tenons serving as support to strengthen the joining of the strakes and to keep them in place. The Khufu ship used unpegged tenons, but on the Galadonia ship, the recovered tenon had a round hole, evidence that the shipbuilders used pegs to keep the mortise and tenon joints locked together. This method is much more common in the ships of the Mediterranean, as opposed to the unpegged tenon method used by the early Egyptians. In the Mediterranean method, the pegs were simply inserted after the strakes had been joined together. A hole would be drilled through the strake, passing through the mortise and tenon. Since a tenon would be half in the top of one strake and half in the bottom of the adjoining strake, two pegs were used, one in each end of each tenon thereby keeping the strakes locked together. Even better, once the wood was gotten wet, early on in the ship's maiden voyage, it would swell, and it would make these joints even stronger and impermeable. An ingenious system, certainly, and I hope that you can see why it was in use for such a large chunk of maritime history, 
as we'll continue to see throughout the podcast. Also, thanks for indulging me on that recap. I really just enjoy sharing with all of you the items that interest me, and methods of construction are one of those items that keeps recurring as I research the uh, content for our episodes. Now, the lone tenon fragment that was found on the Galadonia wreck is important not just for its revelation about the method of construction. This tiny fragment of a ship, when viewed in conjunction with the Uluburun wreck, which we'll talk about later, helped archaeologists to extrapolate a theoretical size for the wrecked Galadonia ship, even in the absence of almost the whole ship itself. This is probably a reliable method of getting an estimate on the Galadonia ship's size, for a few reasons. Ancient shipbuilders tended to build their ships along some generally applicable ratios, even if they weren't using precise measurements all the time. We can talk about these specifics in the future when we look at an amazing shipwreck, the Kyrenia ship, but for now, the ratios used in shipbuilding throughout history are important. Combined with the fact that we at least know the amount of cargo that the Galadonia ship was carrying, which gives us another ballpark number the ship had to have fallen within, we have a few points of info that are salient here. Archaeologists then compared the tenon size to the size and spacing of tenons on the other shipwreck from today's episode, and they came up with a figure for the Galadonia ship of about 40 feet in length. It wasn't by any means a small ship then, so let's now go ahead and look at just what it was that the ship was carrying, and why the cargo became the basis of a somewhat controversial theory. The cargo was almost exclusively in the form of copper ingots, the majority of them in the form of oxide ingots. They're called oxide ingots because of the way they look, fairly rough and hide-like, not to mention their shape, which is similar to the hide of an animal after it's removed. There are protrusions in each corner, made purposefully to aid in transporting the heavy ingots. They weigh around 45 pounds apiece, at least. These copper ingots are important, not just because they're a main ingredient in bronze production, but also because 27 of the ingots on the Galadonia ship bore a foundry mark, revealing their origin as being the island of Cyprus. The ship also bore a few ingots of tin, the other main ingredient in bronze. Beyond the raw commodities, the ship carried many baskets of broken bronze tools, some of them bearing signs of the island of Cyprus, again. It's surmised, then, that the captain used these broken bronze tools as scrap, melting them down to make new tools, adding copper and tin as needed to strengthen the bronze. Looking at all of these items in their whole context gives us enough to surmise that the captain of the ship was likely a traveling metalsmith, able to make bronze tools or weapons to order. Since metalworking requires fire, I also think it's safe to say that he probably set up a rudimentary foundry ashore, just to uh, make 100% certain that he didn't inadvertently burn down his only means of transportation. But all the ingredients and tools that he would have needed to do his work 
were found among the cargo of the Galadonia wreck. The surprising thing about this wreck comes from a few items that I haven't yet mentioned, items like the oil lamps and some baskets that were found among the wreck. The lamps were of Syrian origin, and the baskets were made of material that came from the Levant, not to mention the further presence of some of the world's oldest knockoff merchandise, scarabs made to look like genuine Egyptian scarabs. They were actually produced in the Levant, much for the same reason that knockoff goods are produced today, to reach a market that can't really afford the real thing. That covers most everything that was found at the wreck site, everything that George Bass would have been able to examine and study after he'd finished this earliest of nautical archaeology excavations. Bass published his findings in 1967, after studying the artifacts for several years, and his theory was met with fairly heavy skepticism at the time it was published. He proposed that the ship had originated in Syria, or thereabouts in the Levant, that it had wrecked off Cape Galadonia right around 1200 BCE, and that the maritime trade of the Late Bronze Age was conducted just as much by these Near East proto-Phoenicians as it was by the Mycenaean people. At the time that Bass published his first findings, most archaeologists believed that there was no trade contact between the Levant and Bronze Age Greece, let alone the possibility that Canaanite merchants had the ability to sail the Mediterranean and conduct their own trade. The accepted view until Bass came along was that the Mycenaeans dominated the Mediterranean and that the presence of Greek Mycenaean items around the Mediterranean coastlines was thanks only to the Mycenaean reach. Bass, however, after publishing these findings and being met with skepticism, purposed to find further evidence to corroborate his theory, and that's where the Ulubrun shipwreck comes in. As was the case with many Bronze Age shipwrecks found in the region, the Ulubrun wreck was also originally discovered by a sponge diver who, thankfully, chose to report his discovery to archaeologists rather than plunder the site himself. It's a bit depressing, actually, to think about how many ancient shipwrecks may have been lost over time because of chance discovery by unscrupulous persons. But let's not dwell on that thought today. It is too depressing for me. Rather, let's look at what George Bass and his team were able to glean from the shipwreck at Ulaburun, and just how it's contributed to our view of the Bronze Age history of the Mediterranean. Important write-off for this wreck is to remind you that although it was discovered 20 years after the Galadonia wreck, the Ulaburun wreck has actually been dated to around 1305 BCE making it at least 100 years older than the Galadonia wreck. We'll get into some of the reasons underlying the dating of the wreck as we talk about what the ship was carrying, but let's first look at just how difficult this wreck proved to be in terms of diving and study and even bringing it to the surface for conservation. The Uluburun ship sank in relatively deep water, and the manner in which it came to rest on the bottom made matters even worse. The stern of the ship rests about 140 feet below the surface, with the rest of the ship sloping either further down, 
the extremities at depths of over 170 feet. For my metric-minded listeners, the wreck lies at a slope, the midpoint of which is about 50 meters deep. The topography contour map of the site reveals a steep seafloor resting place for the ship, but even the most shallow part of the ship's grave is at dangerous depths for scuba divers. In fact, the depth of the wreck is so deep that the divers who worked the wreck could only dive twice per day, the length of each dive restricted to around 20 minutes at most. These time restrictions meant that working the wreck was tedious and prolonged beyond what a normal archaeological dive tended to be. Over the course of 11 dive seasons between 1984 and 1994, the team made 22,413 individual dives to the wreck site. In the end, their patience and diligent work paid off in spades, and we're still reaping the rewards today. The items that had initially alerted the sponge divers' attention to the presence of something on the sea floor turned out to be oxide copper ingots, similar to those of the Galadonia wreck. There were over 350 copper ingots lying on the bottom of the sea, and as the divers began to bring them to the surface, they discovered that the ingots had settled on the seabed as they had likely been kept in the ship, stacked in four rows and arranged in a herringbone fashion. The ingots themselves had degraded so much that the archaeologists devised an ingenious method of injecting a new type of glue into the ingots, a glue that took over a year to harden, but after it finally did harden, would allow the ingots to be brought to the surface in one piece, more or less. In addition to the ten tons of copper ingots, which again came from Cyprus, by the way, the wreck site yielded up one ton of tin ingots. The common ratio used in smelting bronze was ten to one copper to tin, so it's intriguing that the Uluburun wreck contained those materials in that exact ratio. The totality of copper and tin ingots made up about half of the ship's total cargo, by weight. But it's the remaining half that's extremely remarkable, so much so that when the findings from the Uluburun wreck were ultimately published, they completely changed the way that archaeologists viewed the late Bronze Age trade of the eastern Mediterranean. Essentially, the Uluburun ship turned out to have been carrying goods from at least seven distinct states, or empires, whatever name you want to use to delineate the various Bronze Age cultures around the Mediterranean. When the ship went down, then, whoever held claim to the treasure of items aboard lost a veritable fortune. Part of that fortune was in the form of 200 ingots of raw glass, likely from Mesopotamia. A variety of colors were present, cobalt blue, some lighter turquoise, purple, even a few of amber shade. These glass ingots are believed to be the oldest intact ingots of raw glass found anywhere to date, and they would have likely been quite expensive in their original context. Beyond the glass, there was also a ton of terebinth resin contained in about 150 Canaanite jars. The resin was possibly used for incense, 
or the jars could have originally contained wine, with the resin added to prevent the growth of bacteria. Some other pottery contained grapes, pomegranates, and figs, in addition to spices like coriander and sumac. There were two dozen logs of ebony from Nubia. A large selection of brand new pottery from Canaan and from Cyprus was also present. Ostrich eggshells used as containers and tortoise shells for use as musical instrument sound boxes were also recovered. And lest you think that's even near the end, let me just launch into this list from Klein's book about 1177 BC. The wreck also yielded scarabs from Egypt and cylinder seals from everywhere else in the Near East, swords and daggers from Italy and Greece, including one with an inlaid hilt of ebony and ivory, even a stone scepter mace from the Balkans. There was also gold jewelry, including pendants and a gold chalice, duck-shaped ivory cosmetic containers, copper, bronze, and tin bowls and other vessels, 24 stone anchors, 14 pieces of hippopotamus ivory, and one elephant tusk, and a six-inch tall statue of a Canaanite deity, made of bronze overlaid with gold in places. Which, Klein notes, did a poor job if it was intended to serve as the ship's protective deity. Another interesting and unique item from the wreck is a diptych book that was recovered in pieces, but was reassembled as far as was possible. The reassembled artifact shows us that the ship carried a pair of writing tablets that were joined in the center by two ivory hinges, forming a diptych that could be opened and closed, essentially a two-page ancient book of sorts. The inside of each tablet contained a rectangular depression that would have been filled with beeswax, giving the scribe a book in which to inscribe temporary notes or records, perhaps an itinerary for the ship, or its cargo manifest. The beeswax succumbed to the elements present in the ship's watery grave, so we don't have any idea what the ship's record keeper would have written on this very old book. But it's quite interesting to note that this diptych is over 500 years older than similar writing tablets that have been found at sites in Iraq, and that it's likely this sort of diptych tablet that Homer was referring to in the Iliad. In Book 6 of the Iliad, the battle is in full swing, and Hector receives advice from a seer that he would do well to return to Troy and arrange for the queen and other women to make offerings in the temple. Hector returns to the city and does so, and at this point there's somewhat of a lull in the battle between the Achaeans and the Trojans. Diomedes, an Achaean, and Glaucos, a Lycian ally of Troy, meet one another in the field between their armies, intending to do personal combat. The Iliad being a Greek myth, they couldn't just start fighting, they first had to taunt one another and try to learn just a little bit about the guy that they hoped to kill, which, conveniently for us as readers of the Iliad, gives us some insight into the two men's family histories, or at least their mythological family histories. Glaucos tells how his granddad, Bellerophon, was in the court of the Mycenaean king Proteus for some reason or another back in the past. 
King Proteus's wife took a liking to Bellerophon, but when he rebuffed her attempts to seduce him, she lied to Proteus, accusing Bellerophon of attempted rape. It's bad press to kill a guest. So the king sent Bellerophon to visit the king's father-in-law, the rebuffed queen's father. My version of the Iliad then puts it this way. And grievous credentials he gave the young man to take with him, a folded tablet wherein Lord Proteus had written many baneful signs, which he bade Bellerophon show to the Lycan king, who would then contrive his death. The rest is history, or uh, mythology, I should say. The king figured that he'd just tell Bellerophon to kill a nasty beast that had terrorized the nearby countryside, and that Bellerophon would be slain. That beast was the Chimera, but Bellerophon captured the Pegasus and slew the Chimera, proceeding then to fulfill every quest that the king sent his way. A bit of a rabbit trail, but these myths are great, especially when they tie directly to something concrete. In this case, the diptych from the Ulibruin wreck. Until the diptych was reassembled and the Ulibruin wreck was dated, historians had steadfastly maintained that Homer's reference to the folded tablet with baneful signs was a mistake. That the writer of the Iliad was importing something from his own time the 8th century BCE, into the supposedly historical tale of the Trojan War, which had purportedly occurred over 400 years previous. The discovery of this diptych writing tablet at Ulaburin, then, proved Homer's Iliad correct, showing that such tablets existed even before the time of the Trojan War. Now, getting back to the Ulaburin wreck, as for the hull of the ship itself, only two meters of the hull have been exposed, but those two meters have proved revealing enough that we know that the ship was built of Lebanese cedar, and that the hull was constructed using the same pegged mortise and tenon joining method that we discussed earlier in relation to the Galadonia wreck. Although its presence at the Ulubruin wreck makes this ship the oldest to have used the method, at least the oldest we've found so far. Estimates based on the cargo and on the spacing between the mortises of the hull have led archaeologists to view the Ulaburun wreck as probably being about 50 feet long. The wealth of artifacts can be traced to at least seven distinct cultures, as I said earlier. Those seven are the Mycenaean, Syro-Palestinian, which are the Proto-Phoenicians, Cypriot, Egyptian, Kassite, Assyrian, and Nubian. I'll post a map to the site showing the location of the wreck, in addition to where the various goods that the ship was carrying would have originated. The map isn't the greatest resolution, but I think it's still helpful to give a visual idea about just how far the various goods traveled before ending up in a heap at the bottom of the Mediterranean. The wealth that the Ulaburun ship was carrying is simply astounding, and a clear sign of the international nature of late Bronze Age trade. Because many of the personal items found, items that would have been kept by the ship's crew, were those of a Canaanite provenance, the accepted view is that the ship originated in the Levant, and was en route to a Mycenaean port on mainland Greece, 
or perhaps on Crete. There are other plausible possibilities, such as the possibility that it was a diplomatic gift rather than a commercial venture, but solid proof of one nature or the other is lacking. Either way, the ship and its cargo can easily be viewed as a microcosmic picture of the state of trade and intercultural relation in the Late Bronze Age. It wasn't only the Mycenaeans that made the rounds after all, though looking back on the past theories from today's vantage point, we can pretty easily see that they were a bit narrow-minded. And I'm sure that future historians will be saying the same about some of our theories. For all the glamour of the Ulibruan ship's hoard, and for all the difference it and the Galadonia wreck made to our view of late Bronze Age trade, I find it kind of fitting that one of the smallest objects recovered from the Ulibruan wreck proved to be one of the most important. The object was an Egyptian scarab, and no, it wasn't a knockoff like the ones from the Galadonia wreck. It was a genuine, solid gold Egyptian scarab. These are fairly rare finds to begin with, but the inscription on this specific scarab made it extremely rare and extremely useful in properly dating the wreck itself. You see, the scarab was inscribed with the cartouche of Nefertiti, the wife of Akhenaten, the pharaoh who attempted to pair the pantheon of Egyptian deities back to only one. Anyway, Nefertiti was second only to the pharaoh, perhaps even a co-regent at one point, and for only five years she spelled her name in a specific manner, abandoning that spelling after Akhenaten got more serious about his Aten religion. The short-lived spelling of Nefertiti's name, Nefer-Neferu-Aten, is indeed how it was spelled on the Ulubruan Rex scarab so archaeologists know that the ship could not have sailed before Nefertiti came to power, around the year 1350 BCE. The scarab date, combined with dendrochronology on the hull's wooden beams, dating of the Mycenaean pottery from the wreck, and even a radiocarbon dating on some of the twigs and branches that were found on the ship's deck, all add up to a date within a few years of 1300 BCE. I think that does it for our look at these two important shipwrecks from the Late Bronze Age. We really haven't yet looked at the wider context of the Mediterranean or the Near East at this stage of the Bronze Age, where these wrecks both came from. The Amarna letters from around 1350 BCE show that things were beginning to unravel, and the wealth of the Uluburan wreck tells us that despite the start of turmoil, wealth still flowed rather freely. Between 1300 and 1200, the situation in the Mediterranean changed somewhat drastically, and I plan to look at this period next time. There's just so much to talk about with this period, and it gets pretty complex, so I anticipate being in this time frame for a little while at least. There are issues of the Trojan War, its historicity, but also issues of how the Sea Peoples began to emerge, where they came from, and how the powers that were then in place reacted to the emergence of the Sea Peoples. I've been pretty surprised to find out just how much archaeological evidence there is 
to back up some of this discussion. So I hope that by the end of our discussion of the late Bronze Age collapse, you feel at least a little bit more like the theories that we'll discuss might have some credence. Honestly, I'll be happy if you come away having learned something new, even if it's just one small item. That is, after all, why I spend the time to put this podcast together for you. As I wrap up for today, I do also want to say thank you to Dave for his kind PayPal donation. Dave has asked me to encourage other listeners to follow his lead in donation as a way to support the show. It's hard for me to argue with that, so if you can support the show by donating, it'll certainly help me improve the show and cover the hosting costs that crop up along the way. Dave is also from henceforth our ship's carpenter, and I'm glad to have him aboard. Thanks are also due to Mick, who became patron number five on our Patreon page. I'm currently working on a patron-only episode, where we'll look at the Greek myth of Jason and the Argonauts, including some discussion of a replica of the ship that Jason is supposed to have sailed on his mythical voyage, along with some other good topics. All of our patrons will have access to that and to any future special episodes, so check out the Patreon page if you want a piece of the action there. Only one iTunes review since our last episode, but many thanks to Irish Spy for that kind review. Reviews are another simple way to support the podcast and to keep us high in the iTunes rankings, which, in theory, helps other listeners find us and join the crew. The last item that I wanted to throw out there today is a book review, I guess, but I'd bet that for many of you, this book has been on your radar before. I'm talking about In the Heart of the Sea by Nathaniel Philbrick. It's the story of a Nantucket whale ship, the Essex, that was rammed by a sperm whale in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, forcing the crew to take refuge in the whaleboats and attempt to sail to a safe harbor. We previously had a giveaway for an illustrated copy of Wreck of the Whale Ship Essex, which was the account of the ship's fateful voyage as told from the perspective of the ship's first mate, Owen Chase. Philbrick's book aims to tell a more impartial tale, and I was somewhat surprised after reading Chase's first-hand account just how much of the story Philbrick felt was left out likely left out on purpose to paint a better picture of the first mate and his conduct during the whole voyage. That's to be expected with any first-hand account, I suppose, but if you want a superbly well-written account of the voyage, the tragedy, the aftermath, and even the cultural context of Nantucket whaling and how their worldview played into the events of the story, then In the Heart of the Sea is a must-read and it's really not that long of a book either. If you don't want to take my word for it, then also be aware that this book was on the New York Times bestseller list for quite a while, and it won the National Book Award for nonfiction in the year 2000. Then, in December of this year, the feature film adaption of the book is set to be released. I feel like I'm always saying that the book was better than the movie, and I'm sure this case won't be any different, So do yourself a favor and read the book now, so you can see the movie over the holidays. I'm sure it will be well done, and the book was superb. Well, that's all I've got for today, everyone. I really appreciate you tuning in today, and I look forward to next time. 
Until then, thanks for listening to the Maritime History Podcast.